Now, I don't know if you saw this a few years ago, uh, but CNN published an article by a young mother named Deborah Mitchell. The article was entitled, Why I Raise My Children Without God. And it was shared countless times across the internet, and eventually it had to be removed from the CNN website after numerous complaints were made. Deborah Mitchell shielded her children from learning about God because she argued that a loving God would not allow murders, child abuse, wars, brutal beatings, torture, and millions of heinous acts to be committed throughout the history of mankind. Whether CNN allows the discussion to take place on its website or not, that question, the problem of evil in our world, is perhaps the most enduring and unsettling question we find ourselves asking. Libraries worth of books have been written exploring the question. There are, of course, conceptual and philosophical responses, but this question is most meaningful when its subject matter is personal. Or think for a moment of the Israelites that we just heard about, recorded in Exodus, wasting away in slavery. God's word comes to them through Moses that God has seen their suffering. God will judge the Egyptians. But after the first few plagues, you can imagine that there might begin to be mutterings, hushed discussions late into the evening. They might say to each other, it it is incredible, isn't it? The flies, the gnats, frogs. But we're still here. We're still here. Has God not really seen our misery and harsh treatment? God, do you really care about our pain? And of course, the Bible, God's word to us, isn't afraid these difficult questions the psalmists write things like how long O lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me how long lord with will the wicked how long will the wicked be jubilant and some of you i know this some of you have borrowed those words or similar in times of desperation to voice what is common to the human experience oh god how long what has gone so wrong with this world and why oh god won't you fix it And last week, as we began to consider the plagues of Egypt, Ian showed us that the most obvious truth we see is God's power. And this week, we will see that the plagues also reveal God's patience. God restrains his cosmic judgment in this world so that a growing number might avoid it. And all of your difficult questions won't be answered this afternoon. 
I'm praying that some might. But more than that, I've become convinced that God wants to speak to us today in ways that will change us. That will help us to trust his timing and help us to take his word to heart. And as we see God's patience at work in the plagues, I think we'll become convinced together that God is in fact putting the world right. But it's precisely because he does care for us that he takes his time. And so let's begin by thinking about trusting God's timing. Now, if you missed last week, you may not know that the first nine plagues of Egypt are recorded over uh, close to nine chapters in Exodus. And they vary in detail. That's because the writer, as with the rest of Exodus, is using his retelling of the Exodus story to show us what God is really like. Yet these acts of unmatched power, they're not explosive bursts of uncontrollable fury. There's careful intention behind each plague. In fact, it does become clear as the plagues progress, that God is holding back his judgment. God could simply Thanos click his fingers and disintegrate the Egyptians, freeing the Hebrews. But he takes his time. And God's restraint becomes blindingly obvious by the seventh plague, which Helen read to us. It's, the, it's in the seventh plague that as the storm clouds gather overhead and the lightning blazes across the sky, hitting the ground, and as the shards of jagged ice plummet through the air, all to a soundtrack of deafening thunder shaking the ground, it becomes clear, if it wasn't before, that this all-powerful God is standing over Egypt in ferocious anger. God has heard the cries. He's seen the evil and has come to judge. And even as Pharaoh and the officials try to trick God with those paper-thin apologies and negotiations, God sees the intentions of their hearts. He sees it all. But I think what is most staggering is what God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh in verses 15 and 16. Why don't you have a look down with me? Verse 15. For by now, six plagues in, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God essentially says, I've got a nuclear weapon that I'm choosing not to use or it's like a a boxer um pulling his opponent into the the clinch deep into the later rounds of a title super super heavy heavy heavyweight fight 
and whispering into his exhausted opponent's ear. <coughs> Great warm-up, buddy. Shall we get started? I could wipe you off the earth. And Moses records very similar language earlier in the first book of the Bible. When God, shortly after humanity fails, God summarizes the situation. This is Genesis 5 to 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And just a verse later we read, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's the beginning of the story of Noah. And these, this is the most intense judgment language that God uses. And when faced with the oppressive, murderous regime of Egypt, God uses that same judgment language to say that he could. He probably should. But he won't destroy Egypt. But make no mistake, God sees it all. This is real judgment, restrained again. Now, it is worth taking a moment to say something about the implications of this. And some of you will be thinking that if you were a slave in Egypt and a deliverer had the power to execute a targeted strike on the Egyptian nation that wouldn't destroy you or your family, you'd be thinking, drop the bomb already. You might even be thinking, why didn't God start with that? But let me just remind you of what God did start with. God, through Moses in the first plague, turns the river Nile, Egypt's freshwater source of life, into blood. But that wasn't the first time that the river Nile had ran red. You see, 80 years before the plagues, before the Hebrews had cried out to God, before he'd promised to deliver them, there was a pharaoh, pharaoh who gave a deadly command to control the rising population of the Hebrew people. In Exodus 1, this is what we read, the pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. That first plague, then, is not random. Moses records that blood was everywhere in Egypt. 
The message is clear. Even if the human witnesses of that terror are long and gone, God saw what they saw and felt what they felt. In the first plague, Egypt is reminded that they literally have blood on their hands. And even if the pharaohs, those deceitful, violent serpents, think that they got away scot-free, God knows their crimes and their victims. You see, blood says something that destruction cannot. These plagues reveal a God who, who has his reasons. He has his reasons to restrain his judgment of evil in Egypt back then and around the world today. And we will get to some of those reasons, but it's worth saying now that the reality is in our own lives, we simply don't know the intricate details and reasonings of why God allows the specific evil and suffering that he does. And this is, of course, not the last genocide or slavery that made the earth a living hell for many. God's ways are higher than our ways, so there is necessarily a degree of mystery to the workings of a holy God. There's just so much we don't know. But we do see in the story of the plagues that amongst the utter evil of our age, God sees it all. He doesn't miss a single tear shed amongst the chaos, death and destruction. He doesn't overlook abuse. God sees what happened in the dark. God knows the ugly and violent intentions of every heart that breaks another. God sees the actions and the heart of every single human being in every single moment, in every single place, throughout the entire earth's history. God sees it all and nothing is forgotten with him. Nothing hidden will not be eventually brought out into the open. The Israelites, like us, might wonder why God's judgment then seems partial or delayed or diluted. But as the plagues in Egypt, these blows of justice ratchet up in intensity, God shows himself to be a ferocious judge of evil. God sees it all, and it turns out that no one is more cut to the heart by evil than the world's maker. God is not impotent against evil, not indifferent, not secretly approving of evil, nor is he naively gullible to the slimy deceitfulness of hearts intent on evil. God sees it all and he is grieved to the heart, deeply troubled, yet 
he holds back ultimate destruction again. God is angry. God is grieved. But God does not rush to punish. God is patient. And with the Israelites, we might find that God asks us to trust his timing. And so here's the question. Why is it so difficult to trust God's timing? And so I've, I've worked up a little thought on that. Isaac, if you click a few uh, slides forward, I'm going to show you something now. And I'm still working this out, but I think this is important. Every culture throughout history has told stories to help understand and explain the chaos. The stories tell us this is how the world really works. A few more. A few more. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, there we go. Perfect. Thank you, Isaac. One of the stories our culture tells us is what I'd like to describe to us today as the good news of happy survival. And now, the good news of happy survival is, of course, ultimately about you, obviously. Next slide, please. Um, and you being happy and surviving. But needless to say, there is one significant problem. Next slide. The chaos. <laughs> the chaos. The world is chaos. Our lives are chaos. Your heart and head is chaos. But in the good news of happy survival, the good news is that these choppy, chaotic waters... Well, we are the captains of our own fate. And so in the story of the good news of happy survival, if you were to ask what exactly is wrong with the world, we'd have to say, well, nothing. The world is exactly how you'd expect it to be. It is what it is. Random, a random spinning rock floating through the chaos of our random universe. It's just unsupervised chaos. And that means that your purpose, according to the good news of happy survival, your purpose is to get on in life and be as happy as you can for as long as you can. And so we're told to adopt strategies for happy survival. We're told to acquire air fryers, to consume chilled beverages, to escape to Malaga or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're told to climb the corporate ladder, to extend the kitchen, to Google our symptoms. We're told to fight for parking spaces at Meadow Hall, to protect what's ours. To join a gym, to make the most of the few moments we have with the ones we love. And so we do. You see, the good news of happy survival is that it's all in your hands. Right? 
And our culture even tells us that religious and spiritual things are also strategies for happy survival. Go to confession, visit a witch doctor, say your prayers, serve at the right conferences, choose the right crystals, contact your ancestors, attract good karma. The good news of happy survival is you can control the chaos by any means necessary. And now, obviously, slightly tongue-in-cheek here, whether you recognise it or not, the good news of happy survival is actually very close to the story underneath our culture. But the point I'm trying to make is that this story of happy survival, even if you just recognise some elements of it, is a fundamentally horizontal story. The the happy survival is good news if you have the resources and the freedom and the finances and the health and the vitality and the mobility, the inner strength, the outer charm, the support team and the environment to ensure that you remain above the chaos of typical human life. But if you live in the chaos, if you grew up in it, If you've been wounded by it, if you've lost people in the chaos, then strategies have their limits. Now, happy survival might be good news if you're a self-proclaimed God, like Pharaoh. But for the slave, a horizontal story can offer no hope of deliverance from the chaos of evil and suffering. The best it can come up with is, here's another better strategy. A better, more powerful air fryer. And we find it hard. We find it hard to trust God's timing because we often find ourselves living by our culture's horizontal story of how the world really works. Or let me put it like this. The plagues show us that the living God is not a strategy we employ for our happy survival. In fact, the Bible tells a very different and opposing story. The good news of God's deliverer. And friends, it begins with God, not us. God is good and kind and true. And he makes everything. And so this is a fundamentally vertical story. But God has an enemy who is an evil, violent liar. He's a serpent of chaos. And instead of listening to God, humanity listens to God's enemy and falls under the control and judgment of God's enemy, chaos. And in this story, God's cosmic judgment on Pharaoh is a small picture of the wider cosmic judgment on the original serpent of chaos and all that God has created. 
And so in the good news of God's deliverer, if you were to ask, what exactly is wrong with the world? It would be a more complicated answer. But it would have to include our disconnection, our vertical disconnection from God caused by human sin, the loss of order in the world, and our enslavement to this serpent of chaos. Our greatest need is not effective strategies to negotiate our happiness and survival in the chaos, but our greatest need is outright deliverance from the chaos. Christianity is the true vertical story of why evil and suffering feel more like an intrusion than simply the inevitable reality. And Paul in the New Testament describes the chaos we experience as this present evil age. And where this good news of God's deliverer is dramatically different is that in this vertical story, the chaos has its limits. There was a time before the chaos. There will be an age after the chaos because there is a patient God above the chaos. The good news is that God himself who exists outside of the chaos, came down and entered into the chaos as a deliverer to rescue slaves, to reestablish order and to judge evil and initiate the age to come. Where happy survival says, run yourself ragged fighting your chaos. God's deliverer says, this is my fight. Rest now. Trust me to fight for you. Trust my timing. And sometimes our frustrations in life are partially down to the fact that our expectations are misaligned with our vertical reality. Because all of this, all, all of this runs according to God's timing, not ours. It's hard, isn't it, to trust God's timing because he doesn't serve our agenda. He isn't swept up into our story. We're swept up into his story and his victory over evil. We serve his agenda. And so in this evil age, trust God's timing because no one is more grieved than he is. There's a world of difference, friends, between happy survival and joyful anticipation. And so, now we've seen how God restrains his judgment of the Egyptians, but now let's take a closer look at why that might be. 
And you may, when hearing the passage read and looking at it again now, begin to notice that as God's power becomes more obvious through the plagues, what God is trying to achieve in Egypt becomes a little bit less clear. And I wonder if you notice that as the plagues escalate, God demonstrates a reluctance to permanently destroy. Think about those early plagues, all reversible. And I wonder if you recognize that God is said to influence the hearts of Pharaoh and his officials. And at the same time, he holds them completely responsible for their actions. And God in the seventh plague seeks to limit the impact of the consequences of their evil as God warns of the coming storm. It's hard to shake the feeling that God cares more for the kingdom of Egypt than its rulers do. Look at verse 20. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves in and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. And it becomes apparent that the first loss of human life in these plagues of Egypt are those left out in the field by slave drivers too callous and merciless to take God's word to heart. And although it's likely that these were not Hebrew slaves, the vindictive defiance of these officials is a stark reminder of the desperation of the situation. Yet this is not a particularly efficient march to freedom. Yes, God restrains his judgment, but he also extends the drama. And just before we begin to think about why, let's think a little and consider the hardening of hearts. And now there are a variety of expressions and words used throughout the plague narrative to describe the inner life of Pharaoh and his officials. Look at verse 34 and 35 in our passage. And you may have noticed this. It says this, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. The heart in the Bible represents the complex inner workings of a person, including their emotional life, but also their capacity to reason and their motivating desires. The heart is where a person's resolve lives. And so the question we have to ask is, did God force Pharaoh's decision to not listen? Is Pharaoh some kind of enslaved puppet of God? And there are a range of expressions that Moses could have used to communicate that meaning, to make that clear. But he does not use those expressions. 
Moses is expressing something else. Pharaoh is not forced to do anything. And throughout the plagues, though it is known to God that he won't, repentance is God's desire. It is in Pharaoh's heart that he chooses, as freely as a human can, to not submit, not surrender, not yield, refusing to be humbled. And to be sure, this repentance isn't a simple, reversible sorry, but it has to be the tectonic shifting of the heart, a handing over of the keys of his life and kingdom to God, a decentering, dethroning of himself to follow God and his word from the heart. That's what repentance is for any of us. And God says, do what I say. And Pharaoh resolves to never do that. And the range of expressions that Moses uses for the hardening of uh, that resolve are more to do with strengthening than they are to do with redirecting. And God doesn't let us in on the psychobiological workings of how he does that. That's a mystery to us. But the impact is clear. The pre-existing resolve is strengthened at times by Pharaoh himself, and at other times by God. And it's also important to say here that God is not tempting Pharaoh to become or do evil in increasing degrees. Pharaoh is not a godly, good, or neutral agent in this story. Like every human heart without God's intervention, Pharaoh's heart, in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, is deceitful. Above all things, beyond cure, who who can understand it? The strengthening of Pharaoh's resolve then allows for the full-throated expression of his most deep, and authentic anti-God desires. And think about this. Squeezing a lemon doesn't make the lemon any more bitter than it truly is. It makes the lemon's bitterness liquid. Just like freezing a lemon doesn't make the lemon bitter, it makes the lemon's true bitterness solid and this is the picture we need to have of pharaoh that serpent of chaos as the plagues progress he is like a fighter on the ropes bloodied and beaten outclassed and overpowered and in his heart his resolve is to kill his opponent His mind chants, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. Give me a chance and I'll kill him. And now his opponent may strike him. His opponent may even lower his guard. His opponent may even lift him back to his feet after knocking him to the ground. But those things will only give opportunity and strength to the desire already animating the weaker, doomed fighter. 
we, we, we could say more on this. But the overall sense when taken in the progression of the plagues is that God, seeking to extend the drama, strengthens Pharaoh's ability to express his inner resolve without diminishing Pharaoh's human responsibility. Pharaoh remains guilty for his actions. And if you do want to look into this some more, the Apostle Paul discusses it in Romans 9 and describes the hardening of Pharaoh's heart as the opposite of mercy. And it seems as God hands the rulers, it seems that God hands the rulers of Egypt, he hands them over to their perpetual reinforcement and self-justification of their sin their hatred, their murder, and their evil. And so God extends the drama in ways that only God can. Pharaoh's creator, the God sustaining Pharaoh's very life, his every breath, speaks to him and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, your name means nothing around here. Yet God gives him a second chance. Plague after plague after plague. A ninth chance, a tenth chance, an eleventh chance to respond to his word. And the whole of Egypt is watching this drama unfold. But did you see it in the text? God's intentions go beyond Egypt. Look at verse 16. In this seventh plague, this seventh round, this seventh blow of justice, God says to this serpent of chaos, you have no idea. You, you're putty, you're clay in my hands. You were made for this very moment. Who do you think put that tiny crown on your puny head? You toothless dragon. I've got you just where I want you. You see, Pharaoh was raised up by God to achieve a wider objective. But what could be greater than the deliverance of the Hebrew slaves? What could be greater than a growing geopolitical reputation for powerful and severe justice? Think about it. There, there are going to be government memos in neighboring Assyrian kingdoms, rumors circulating across the region, hushed discussions carrying on late into the evening in places like Goshen, Whiston, Ramash, and Broome. <laughs> They'll say, they, do you know, they have a God who leaves the door open. They have a God who spares his enemies. They have a God of 11th chances. Friends, church, here's what we need to hear today. God's, God's patient restraint is achieving for him a kind of victory that justice 
alone cannot. It appears to me that there are only two ways to rid the world of evil. The first way is to destroy evil. The second way is to make evil good. And only one of those requires patience. Now, suppose you bought a house, house of your dreams, beautiful home. You spent countless hours decorating it. You managed to get it just how you wanted it, just how you've been dreaming about it. And at the heart of this home sits an antique dining table, a family heirloom full of sentimental value. I suppose you go away for an extended break, and when you return, you discover that squatters, squatters, have broken into that home and have wrecked every room and have caused significant structural damage. The squatters, they're, they're a real mess. They're violent and brutish and they, they're, well, they're not very looked after. And frankly, it doesn't seem like they're used to being indoors. And as you stand at the door and knock, they treat you as if you don't exist. What should you do? What would you do? Call the police? Call a lawyer? Well, suppose you are a trained and fair lawyer. Suppose you know that if they have the forged legal documents that they need, the litigation process to get them evicted from your home could take months or even years. But in the moment, you have an idea. Imagine you slide down the side of the house, being careful not to be seen. You manage to make it to the service panels where you can cut the water supply and disconnect the power. But you're also now in a better position to see more of the destruction inside. And as you do, you feel your blood boiling. And then you see it. That beautiful, antique dining table, ruined. And then you see them. Well, kind of. You see, you see two children. The squatters have children. And they can't be much older than two years old. But they, they, they seem malnourished. They're thin. They look weak. And sad, and neither of them are clean. And they're sat by the legs of the antique table, and they're using permanent markers to colour in the ornate contours of the carving, destroying what you value most. And you want to tear the walls down. But suppose instead you, you stop the water supply. You disconnect the gas, you cut the electricity to the house from the outside, and as you do, the house is plunged into darkness. And you hear the sound of confusion, clamoring around in the dark, and also you can make out 
the quiet, fearful whispers and whimpers of those children. You think to yourself, well, I'm well within my rights. How would you sleep that night? What would you tell people when they asked? How would you frame that story of justice served? You see, God comes across such situations and worse every hour around the world. We might say that he is the rightful owner. And we might say that he's a perfectly trained and fair lawyer. That he is well within his rights to tear the walls down. Or at least cut off those who have made a mess of themselves and damaged his home. But what does God do? You see, there are only two ways to rid a home of squatters. One is to tear down the walls, wipe them off the face of the, the earth, evil destroyed. <clears throat> and the other, the other is to make squatters family. You see, you add their names to the deeds of the home and they will be squatters no more. Offer them a seat at your table to make evil good. But only one of those requires mercy. You see, God's patience in the plagues begins with the reality that God at heart is a perfect and ferocious judge. But he restrains himself because he is also the father of creation. He's merciful enough to keep the lights on. He's good enough to pity bad people to move towards the crime with the compassion of a father. And if he did, if he did, if he did forgive those squatters and give them all he had, Imagine the songs and the stories those children would grow up learning. Imagine how his mercy would melt the jagged ice of their hearts. You see, it is divine justice that will eventually rid this world of evil creating a new and safe one. But it is divine mercy that will fill it with the sounds of his name being proclaimed by thankful ex-squatters. Sinners made whole and free. You see, God's patient restraint of his justice is achieving for him a reputation that justice alone cannot. You see, God makes himself known through the plagues, known in power, in justice, and, and in mercy. And so like the Israelite community, we are forced to answer the question, will we be a community that takes his word to heart? Are we listening? 
when he says that he works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Are we listening? When he says that like a father who has compassion for his children, so he has compassion for us. Are we listening? when he assures us that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Have you let it sink in? Have you let it flow over you when he promises that as far as the east is from the west, so far Has he removed our crimes from us? Are we listening? You let that sink in. The Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows, he sees how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. You see, God isn't fooled by serpents of chaos like Pharaoh. God shows Pharaoh his wrath in the end. We'll get there in our series. Yet in the New Testament, in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul describes another serpent of chaos, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Yet God chooses to show this Pharaoh his mercy. This is Paul talking about himself. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. And Paul is doing what these plagues of Egypt also do. They confront us with the nature of the living God confronted with transcendent justice that can make sense of evil and bring slaves hope transcendent mercy that can forgive the worst of evil evil and even make enemies family bring pharaohs to their need and will get messy wounded sinners home the plagues confront our world with the god who slays serpents and saves serpents because he is I am and so the answer to the question what could possibly be greater than the deliverance of Israel that's the answer the deliverance of the world you you me And so let me close. I've, I've gone over time. <laughs> so God is more grieved by our sin in his world than any of us are. 
yet he's more merciful to sinners than any of us could have ever dreamed. God restrains his cosmic judgment in this world so that a growing number of us might avoid it by his mercy and join him in the coming age. That is, of course, not everything we could say or might want to say. Neither will your difficult questions have found neat answers today. But I think we can see that the smaller picture of how God deals patiently with Pharaoh reveals to us the greater picture of how God is patiently dealing with our broken world. And I do hope that you're persuaded that behind the chaos and evil of this world and the suffering you endure is the divine patience of a good God who cares for you and has a plan for deliverance and justice that cannot and will not be derailed by his enemy. You see, God has resolved resolved it in his heart to care for you and that resolve cannot be all any stronger than it already is yeah let me let me just take a moment i want to speak to those of you who in your heart of hearts know that you haven't yet responded to god in repentance And this may be the first time you've been in a gathering like this. You may have have been coming to church all your life. And I'm so glad you're here. Years ago, someone gave me an opportunity to respond to a message like this. And I'm thankful that they knew that it was the best thing I could possibly do with my life and shared it with me with a sense of urgency. And so I want to end our time by doing the same for you. You see, 2,000 years ago, God's perfect patience was embodied in a single man. And it was expressed in a single moment. That man was Jesus Christ, God the Son, God come down in the chaos, God's deliverer. And that single moment was his judgment absorbing death for the world. You see, before he died amongst criminals, Jesus, who lived the perfect life that each one of us ought to live and died the death that each one of us deserves to die, he uttered these words. Jesus, when he went out of the city, he stretched out his arms and he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus offers outright deliverance to those who deserve his outright anger. And even as the nails pierced his palms, his patient mercy persists for us. He stands at the door and knocks. He invites you to his table. And only Jesus can make sinful people safe. So come to him now. Come to him for justice. Come to him for mercy. 
have your wounds soothed and your sins forgiven. Come to him. He is good to bad people. He proves himself worthy to the unworthy. And of course you don't deserve his mercy. That's why it has to be mercy and not justice alone. He's kind to the harshest of us and gentle with those about to break. He gives life where only death reigned. Come to him. He cares for you. Aren't you tired of trying to control the chaos? Hand over control of your life. He died so that you might repent and be made new, crowned with love and compassion. Come to him while you can. Please. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your prophet in Isaiah, in some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, calls each one of us to respond to you. Turn to our God. He is always ready to forgive. Father, thank you for your just for who you are. Thank you that you don't give us what we deserve. You give us what we could never earn. Father, we are sorry that we live in your world as if it's ours, and we ignore you as if you're nothing. Father, we so want to dethrone ourselves. We don't want anything to do with that serpent of chaos. And thank you that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you offer us complete and outright deliverance as we hand over the keys to our lives, the control to you. Father, I ask, you know our hearts, you know how we're responding to you. Father, I pray that as a church, you'd help us to be more like you. Give us all that we need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.